Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. This podcast is taking place before a live audience here at Samford University with our very distinguished guest, Dr. Timothy Keller. Dr. Keller is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, one of the great articulate voices for Christian faith that God has raised up in our time, written many books that have blessed millions and millions of people. Tim, we're honored to have you with us today on the Beeson Podcast. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. Now, let's just begin by asking you, if you would, tell us a little little bit about yourself, where you came from, how you came to faith in, in Christ. Um, I'm from Pennsylvania. I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania. I grew up in a Lutheran church background. Uh, my family were uh, been in that lived in that part of the country for a couple centuries, and every as far back as we know, we were German, a German Lutheran family that came to the states in the 1700s. I went off to college, and I came under the influence of an intervarsity Christian fellowship chapter. There were some people there on my um, my freshman hall that hauled me off to it, thought I needed it. If they had gotten me uh, the first semester, I would have said, no, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I think by the second semester, I was like a lot of college students really rethinking whether I was a Christian or not uh, and not really sure what, where I was in my beliefs. And then they started taking me to InterVarsity, and I fell under the influence of mainly the, the the authors. They had a book table, and the book table was all these British authors. So John Stott, Jack Packer, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, uh, C.S. Lewis. And I started reading those books, and they, they made sense to me. So I had a fairly, in some ways, a non-dramatic, uh, intervarsity-ish uh, conversion in college in 1970. Now, every student who applies to Beeson Divinity School, and really almost to any evangelical seminary, is asked to describe their call to the ministry. We have them write an essay on it here, as well as write an essay on the Apostles' Creed. So can you say a little bit about your call to be a minister of the gospel? Well, as soon as I got converted, I just en- I enjoyed the, the, the Christian fellowship. I enjoyed the reading. I enjoyed the leading the meetings. I enjoyed it. Reading, uh, doing Bible studies, uh, leading Bible studies. I enjoyed that Christian work so much that that's where I began to say, well, maybe I'd like to do this. So in a sense, I got, as a, as a, uh, as just a Christian on campus in a Christian fellowship, that's really where I began to get a sense of it. I don't think I <clears throat> thought through the call thing very much until a little later. And I went off to Gordon Conwell Seminary the minute I got out of Bucknell. And, and, um, when I was there, I just I sensed this is what I want to do. And that happened pretty early. I mean, but I, I had my first church in Hopewell, Virginia, when I was still 24. Mm. I was a, the only pastor of a church, not a big church, but a church. That after I graduated from Gordon Conwell, so I just I just moved right on through. I don't remember struggling with the call. I just felt like this is I think what I'd like to do. That's all. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a couple of names. I'd like to ask you to say a little bit more about them. I know one very important to you was John Stott, Mm -hmm. and the other was C.S. Lewis. Probably, I'm guessing, you may not have known C.S. Lewis in person, but you did John Stott. 
Cecil is a little older than that's me. That's what I mean. Yeah. However, my my <laughs> interesting interesting uh, note is my wife prob- feels like she became a Christian reading the Narnia Chronicles. So when she was about twelve, uh, and if you know my wife, you would know this. This doesn't it wouldn't surprise you. She started writing C.S. Lewis, just talking about her life and about how much she appreciated the books and asking him questions, and he wrote back. Mm-hmm. We're not sure how many times she saved four letters. I mean, when you're a twelve, thirteen year old girl. And you're writing somebody who we, she had no idea would ever someday be famous. All she knew was he was an author. Uh, she kept four of the letters, which we have. Uh, and she, we, we, she thinks there's probably some others. Mm. Uh, they're also, back in those days, letters miscarried, as they say. Uh, so, But the, uh, the letters are wonderful. It shows Lewis's um, uh, just, he always wrote back. He never wrote, he never talked down. He always took the questions very seriously, even... Uh, uh, her letters are in a book of a volume of C.S. Lewis's letters to children. If you ever see that, it's really, it is, he's, he was a lovely man. She actually showed up at his home in 1964. She was, you know, 14 then. She angled her way to get, to get over to Britain with, with some English friends, went up to the door, knocked on the door, thinking he'd be there, uh, had no appointment, of course, and Warney, he was dead, but Warney Lewis came out. Her, his uh, that's uh, C.S. Lewis's brother, who he lived with, and and you know just in a very gentlemanly way, apologize. I'm so sorry, my brother's dead, and he can't meet you or anything like that. But then, <laughs> then showed showed her through the house. So would you like to see the house? So she went through and picked out some flowers in the garden. You know, never thought to take any pictures or anything like that. Had no idea that someday it would be one of the main memories of her life. So wow. so that's the C.S. Lewis you know connection, and it's. One of the reasons why she she basically got me into his books because she said this guy was a real was the real deal the way he treated me the way he wrote to me. Mm. Now I want to ask you about John Stott, but before we go to John Stott, I want to stick with Lewis just a little bit because he's such an icon uh, for evangelicals, but now, other, other Christians now. now. Yeah. Uh, but there are also some things about him that are rather angular. For example, he believed in purgatory. Did you say Anglican or Angular? I said Angular. No, he was an Angular Anglican. No, there are Angular Anglicans. And I know. He, he was probably <laughs> There's also more smooth, rounded Anglicans, too. So, But, you know, he believed in purgatory. He had all of these. He was an Anglo-Catholic in his mm-hmm. liturgical style. Yeah. Things that we don't just associate. So, uh, so I'm asking you, <laughs> how can C.S. Lewis be of such help and uh, a mentor to so many people in the Christian life, and yet we have maybe some differences with him? Oh yeah. Well, I think it's largely because he didn't make a he didn't push those differences. I mean, when he talked about mere Christianity, he meant it. He said, "Let's talk about the things we all hold in common." And he was such a uh, clear communicator. Uh, you know, George Morrison's written a book about mere Christianity. I read this summer. It's a book on why mere Christianity, the book "Mere Christianity," is so effective, and it, the, that book is all is worth it. Is worth reading, especially the end where he says. Lewis looked for common experiences from common people to illustrate things like sin and grace. So he's, he majored in the majors. As soon as you go into his essays and things and you see all the other things he believed, a lot of them are kind of strange. But that wasn't what he – he didn't push those things. He, he was majoring in the majors. I think that's one of the reasons why we can, we, we can still embrace him in spite of those differences. Yeah. Another thing he did that some uh, Baptists don't do is drink scotch and smoke mm-hmm. cigars. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, the uh, he he not only smoked and drank, but he smoked and and so did Warney so much though that the uh, it was it took uh, the his the ceiling of of everywhere in the kilns 
was yellow. <laughs> it was sort of brownish yellow. It was just uh, uh, they were bachelors, you know. I mean, they, she, you know, Joy lived there for a while, and then she died. And it was Kathy remembers it being a real man cave. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was just it was, and be, and he said it just smelled. Yeah. Uh, it smelled yeah. of uh, alcohol and and nicotine. Wow. It was unbelievable. So yes, and that's not very Baptist either. Yeah, but but you know, yeah, I'm a Presbyterian. Yeah, I'm a Presbyterian. <laughs> so, so. Now John Stott. So, one of the things that was fun about Uncle John mm-hmm. was I actually got to mainly meet him when he was in his 80s. He came to we we brought him to New York several times and spoke at Redeemer and spoke some other places. He he always said that in spite of Billy Graham's. Um, uh, you know, Great Crusade in the 1950s in in, uh, in New York City, that actually uh, Christianity had really declined in Manhattan. And he said, in my whole life, I hardly ever got to New York. And the main reason was there wasn't anybody there to invite me or there wasn't anybody there to use me. And so when Redeemer and the church, the, you know, the body of Christ are growing in New York in the 80s and 90s, we pulled him over there really quickly, and he loved it. Mm. And he was... Um, a real statesman, you know, a real statesman, and probably one of the very first, if not the very first, Western white evangelical guy to realize that, that Christianity had gone global. Yeah. He was, I mean, when everybody else was just not realizing what was going on, he dedicated the last part of his life to that, saying, Christianity, the, the, the center of gravity of Christianity has shifted mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. It's not just a European, North American thing. So he was a real visionary in that, too. You see that when you go to All Souls, and there are people there from every tribe, nation, oh, yes. kindred on the face of the earth. Just oh, yes. about. Yeah, he was another hero. Yeah, we we had John Stott here. He he gave lectures for us and was a great friend and mentor to me and to many of us. And I, I, it's hard to find somebody kind of like him today in the evangelical world. That's so embracing and yet so rock solid at his center. It may be we were more unified. I mean, I, that's another subject. I don't know whether you want to go there or not, but I do think. That when I was uh, coming up, evangelicalism meant th- there was there was liberal Christianity. We, we weren't saying it wasn't Christianity, but it was. You might say you know it was uh, doctrinally they were re- doing a lot of reengineering of classical doctrines. You had fundamentalism, which was uh, held on to classic orthodoxy, but also tended to be sectarian, tended to be um, tended to withdraw from the culture. And I just remember when I was a young man, became a Christian, went off to Gordon Conwell. I would say, evangelicalism was this was a was a form of Christianity, Protestant Christianity, which which shared with liberalism its concern, uh, it, its its love of learning, uh, its concern for the best scholarship, uh, its desire to be culturally engaged and socially relevant, but at the same time shared with fundamentalism the uh, historic Christian. Doctrines that and, and without re-engineering them, it was not that hard to see the difference between those three groups. And I think you know, a Billy Graham or a John Stott could come up, and they were recognized by everybody in that middle space mm. as their leader. And that's actually not true anymore. Partly because evangelicalism, in some ways, was quote successful, and you know outgrew mainline Christianity and and so on. Nevertheless, I do think that it's more way more fragmented. Than it used to be, and so it's a little difficult to imagine anybody 
who could rise up to be father figures like those guys. I'm not sure that could happen anymore. That's my my yeah. idea. Now, now you're a, you're an evangelical, you're a Presbyterian, and yet you have a voice and a reach, I think, far wider than those two identities. Have you thought about why that is the case? Wider than Stott and Billy Graham? No. You, didn't I, mean that. you mean about the... I say you're a Presbyterian, you're an evangelical. Oh, I mean those identities. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you reach okay. people a lot broader yeah, than I, those, those two. Well, partly because people like John Stott were inspirations to me, and I... So, yeah, I try. I just don't think, frankly, the environment's very... is. It's not a good environment for trying. Mm. But I actually... I would... Yeah, you're you're right in identifying that, that uh, he would be an inspiration. I was trying to say... I mean, if you read his um, biographies, actually, when I, I was I was honored to be asked to speak at his memorial service at Wheaton when when he died, and I read six biographies of him. The last one was fascinating. It's called uh, uh, "Godly Ambition," mm. but it's very clear that he was very concerned about the renewal of the Anglican Church and the um, uh, the growth of the Anglican Church, and yet he was just equally concerned about the church in general. He just he had this perfect balance. He wasn't ignoring his tradition as, oh, well, who cares about being Anglican? He loved it, utterly loved it, reveled in it, and yet was it was, was equally concerned about the whole body of Christ, knowing that the world's not going to be won only by Anglicans or by Presbyterians or any one of those groups. I would say he's a model for me, though I wouldn't say that anybody's voice can go as wide as his did because of the situation we're in now. I want to ask you about your your preaching and your writing, because you seem to want to take very seriously the questions that come out of skepticism, out mm-hmm. of atheism, out of agnosticism. Uh, this We live in a culture of disbelief, as someone has written a book with that title, and you're very alive to these questions. You, there is a kind of apologetic thrust to your work. I don't know if you would call it apologetics, mm-hmm. but yeah, you really are engaging these kinds of issues uh, at the intellectual level as well as the level of the heart and the emotions and the whole person. So um, say a little bit about that. That's uh, your book, Reason for God. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's kind of a current that goes through there. Uh, you, you take on the new atheist in there, for example. I think it's... it's yeah. Yes. Good observation, sir. No. I, I think it started, I know what you're say, talking about. It's the practical response to a situation that I found myself in in New York. Uh, when I began uh, our church and began preaching, We uh, New York is still, Manhattan is still very singles-oriented. That is, even today, with probably 60% or more, almost two-thirds of the people who come to Redeemer are single. So uh, I remember, you know, do you remember Carl George? You, you know a relation yeah, to Carl I'm George. Not, I know a relation, but I knew But him. Carl yeah. George once told me that there's no church like that in the world. He mm-hmm. says, if a church gets to be four, five, six, seven thousand, you don't have two-thirds singles. You just don't. Nobody's like that. And I said, well, we didn't try. It's just that that's who lives in the middle of Manhattan. Single people, it's far easier for Christian single people to bring non-Christian single people to church. Mm. Uh, if a, if a, if a, uh, a Christian family tries to, to bring a non-Christian family to church, you know how complicated that decision is? Because if there's anybody in that non-Christian family that doesn't want to go, they're not going. If the teenagers don't want to go, you know, or one of the spouses doesn't want to go, that's just not going to happen. The others aren't going to go without them. And uh, But single uh, to, for a single person to make a decision to go to church or even try it out is a more unilateral decision. And I became to realize that I had far more self-identified, conscious non-Christians 
every single week sitting right there with all the Christians. I had never really come up against that. And I began to say, I need to be never talking about the main doctrines of Christianity without doing it against the backdrop of real secular disbelief. Mm. So um, that's where I learned it, mm-hmm. because I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And as time has gone on, now it, it, uh, it, just, it affects the writing too. But that's really where it began. It wasn't just an abstract idea. Yeah, it was. It really was born of the uh, the reality I had in front of me, and I now see as the culture's gotten more secular. I mean, twenty New York, the big cities are unfortunately ahead of the curve. So things that are in New York five to ten years later are everywhere, and that's just the way. It's same thing for L.A. and some other places like that. So I saw a lot of things that are that are freaking everybody out now about our culture. I've been in that ever since I got to New York. And so now I found that the books I write, more and more people who live everywhere in the country saying, oh my goodness, this is exactly what, that's exactly the tone. You, you, you take, uh, you're not just speaking to the choir. You're speaking to a breadth of people. And I, but you know, great. I'm glad the books now are widely read. In the beginning, I just thought I was trying to reach New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. But now because the culture has changed, a lot of the way in which I, talk to Christians and non-Christians at the same time now becomes uh, helpful for books and speaking everywhere. I have with me one of your books. It's my favorite of your books, King's Cross. That shows your age because, they, <laughs> you know, the, the publishers changed the name. I always, What's it, it called it's now? It's called Jesus the King, but Jesus I like King's King. Cross. King's Cross, if you've been to London, of course, you know that's a very well-traveled uh, yeah, in, two-stop. In, in Britain, they keep it King's Cross, but the, the publisher yeah. said nobody knows what King's Cross means here, so anyway. Too bad. There we go, but well, I like the book, too, that way. Yeah, I, I love this book. It, it's, a, it's a book that is really about Jesus, but you bring in the cross, the atonement. It's a very powerful theological book, but... Again, pitched into a into a culture. I want to ask you about the term king, and this would apply to either the old or the new title, mm-hmm. King Jesus. Um, now, we're recording this just for your information, those of you who are listening on the podcast, on Election Day 2016. Mm-hmm. Now, I am not going to ask any questions about the election, and when you hear this, it will Thank already you. be over. So, right. anyway... Um, but I, I, this morning on Election Day, I got up and, and read an article by a Catholic sister, Sister Teresa Noble, in which she said, I'm voting for Jesus for president, parenthesis, or king. And so it seems to me that Jesus for king is a hard sell in our culture today with its strong emphasis on individualism, on Mm -hmm. democratic values. Mm -hmm. We don't like kings. Uh, Several hundred years ago, we kicked them out of this country. And so um, talk about the image of Jesus as king speaking into a culture of skepticism and individualism, as you do every week. It's a complicated case to make. Because you're absolutely right, it doesn't, um, it doesn't, it do, it doesn't work. In fact, it hasn't worked for a long time. It's, we, you know, we had this thing called the American Revolution, yeah. right? I mean, that was even before our time. Yep. And um, and there's uh, we got rid of kings back then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Americans haven't been big on big on kings. You know, John Guest. Did you know? I do know John. John remembers when he was a young man, first time he came to America. I think he was in Philadelphia. And he was going to some museum where they were showing revolutionary memorabilia. And he saw a sign that was, that was put in a tavern back in those days. And you know what it said? We serve no sovereign here. <laughs> as, a, as an Englishman, he went, whoa, you know, I am in America. But actually, 
if you go, it goes back that far. I mean, yeah. it goes back that far. The idea of kings, we're, you know, we, we like presidents sometimes. We, we don't want kings. So actually making the case that you need a king is uh, a, I'd say a complicated case, but it's one of the main things that ministers and evangelists have to do today, that you really want a king and you really need a king. And that's a, that's a hard sell. Now, one of the ways to do it would be this. Uh, this is, I got to answer this question without it taking too long, even though I just, even though I warned you that it takes time. Richard Balkum mm-hmm. has written a, an article called, uh, it's a chapter in a book called The Bible, Reading the Bible is a Coherent Story. But it, it, he makes an amazingly, he makes it a, a fascinating case in there. He said, he says, even secular people right now are realizing that if everything is relative, if everything is relative, you actually can't have a program of justice. You can't say there, there is no right and wrong, all truth is relevant, and then turn around and say, hey, that's racism. You just can't do it. So he says what you need is an absolute. You need an absolute value. But what worries us about absolute values in our modern time is that people who think they have absolute values then become oppressors. You take the absolute value, say, because we're right and you're wrong, therefore you have to bow to us. So he says that um, modern people are sort of stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place. And Christian Smith in his book, uh, Lost in Transition, his great book about young Americans says that modern young Americans are insist, they insist on being relativistic. They say, no, nobody can say who's right or wrong, what's right or wrong for me. But then turn around, they are very moralistic. And they say, these things are wrong and these things are wrong. And if you ask them why they're wrong, they say, well, you ju- they just are. Hmm. <clears throat> and, and so Richard Bauckham says, modern people are stuck. They have a sense that some things are absolutely unjust and wrong, but they're also afraid of oppression. And Bauckham says the case that Christians have to make to the world today is that Christianity gives you the one absolute that doesn't turn you into an oppressor. It's a, he calls it a non-totalizing absolute, meaning an absolute that doesn't lead to totalitarianism. And why? Because the absolute is a king on a cross. If you have no king, if you've got no king, then there's no justice. You know, do what you want. There, there's no, there's no, there's no king. There's no rule. There's no, uh, there's no moral law. But you say, oh, but if we have a king, then it leads to injustice. Not if it's a king who goes to a cross rather than a throne. Because Kathy, three days after 9/11, some of you probably heard me say this before. Three days after 9/11, every article in the New York Times was, "This is what religious fundamentalism leads to violence." Religious, if people think that they've got. The, the, the truth that, that leads to violence. They think they've got absolutes that leads to violence. Fundamentalism leads to violence. That's, you know, religious fundamentalism. And Kathy, I was reading this out loud to her, and if you know Kathy, she says, oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> she says, it depends on what your fundamental is. And then she says, have you ever seen an Amish terrorist? <laughs> and her point was, if the fundamental, if the, if the absolute value is a, is a man dying for his enemies saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, I said, maybe you could still be a Christian and believe the gospel. And, and people have certainly been oppressive who are Christians, but only in spite of the gospel, not because of it. And so uh, Richard Bauckham makes the case that said there is one absolute value that will not make you an oppressor and yet still give you a basis for doing justice. And it's not just a king, but a king on a cross, a king who serves, uh, a king who, uh, you know, the judge who came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. So... That's complicated. I, I'm sorry I took so long on it, but you've somehow, in various ways, that's the case we've got to make. We've got to 
hit them from the left and the right. We have to agree with the secular culture that moral absolutism leads to oppression and Christians have done it. And we have to hit them from the other side and say, but you can't live without moral absolutes. And Christianity gives you the one that will not turn you into an oppressor if you really take it seriously, if you grasp it, if you, if you live true to it. So don't ask me questions that take such long <laughs> answers anymore, please. Anyway. Well, uh, you mentioned 9-11. I did want to ask you about the sermon you preached on the Sunday after 9-11. We've oh, yeah. actually aired this on the Beeson podcast before. Yeah. How did you find it? I don't know. <laughs> Kristen Padilla, our, our producer, you I think, it? found it. But it's it was, there. A, it was I mean, a, It's a wonderful sermon. And, uh, yeah, what a day. Uh, tears, I forget, anger, grace, and grief or something like that. Those mm-hmm. four words are in the title. Say a little bit about what it was like to preach with smoldering buildings not too far from where your church was meeting yeah. on the Sunday after 9-11. Yeah. It smelled. I mean, uh, the uh, for for days, the, everywhere you were in New York City, you could smell it. Because, I mean, you know, you can't have something that huge fall to the ground with 3,000 dead bodies, and it was all, it was all burning up. It was astounding. I mean, it was the hugest, you know, funeral pyre bonfire as it were this massive massive thing and uh, so the entire place smelled of, of the stench of it for for days um yeah i mean the other i'll just two things they're interesting which which are are relevant the christian church is not hurt by <laughs> it's not really hurt by social disasters i mean every single church in the t- in the city was just packed the next couple weeks and we had we were a church of about twenty eight hundred people. That was the average attendance. Um, the Sunday after nine eleven, fifty two hundred people showed up. Hmm. I mean, uh, my son. I remember all my sons who had non Christian friends call him up and say, "Isn't your dad a pastor?" He said, "I heard your dad was a." I remember he, he said, "Yeah." He says, well, does, "Does you know? Could can I go to church? Where do you go to church?" In other words, I and they said, "I just need some. I need a place of connection." So, I mean, there's people, I've got elders, by the way, who are elders now who became Christians after coming that Sunday. There's hmm. tons of non-Christians there. And actually, we only had one morning service at Hunter College. And about 15 minutes before uh, the service was to start, we were packed out and people were, were, were lining up outside. So I got all the musicians together and everybody I could. I got there, we called an audible. And at, at 10 minutes of, we said, we're going to have a service. We're going to be careful and make sure it's only an hour and 15 minutes. And then we're going to have a second service. We didn't have a second service. We just called an audible and said, if there's anybody out there who can't get in, come on back in two hours and we'll have another service. Hmm. And almost 900 people showed up. So uh, we had lots and lots and lots of nonbelievers, uh, a fair number of people uh, today are in our church who became Christians in the aftermath of that. Um, people on the street in New York City, you'd come up out of the subway and you'd meet strangers and they would say, did you lose anybody? Mm. And hug each other. Now, that's called social capital, by the way. Social capital is a non... Social capital is a sense of, of a feeling of a bondedness and trust between people that can only be put there by r- common moral religious values very, uh, or uh, maybe, maybe a blood kinship or shared historical experience. Those are the three things that create social capital. And it was astounding the, uh, for about a year of how New Yorkers pulled together. And then a lot of people left because they were afraid it was a dangerous place. A lot of young people who lived there, their parents insisted they leave. So we lost a lot of people that way. They said it's not a safe place to be. 
And after about a year, there was enough turnover that enough people moved in that hadn't been through it, and the social capital went away. But there was a lot of great ministry that happened, and there was also an explosion of church planting mm. during that time. So it was actually, for, spiritually speaking, it was an extremely good time for New York, if, you, if I think back on it. At the time, everybody was depressed. But honestly, the Christian church only thrives in difficulty. It's the place where people show up in difficulty. So I don't want I don't want our I don't want us to have a recession. I don't want us to have a depression. I don't want us to have, you know, social chaos in in a place like America. But I also know sometimes God lets that happen as a way of bringing revival. It's hard to remember a sermon you preached 15 years ago, but it was on John 11. If yep. you remember that, Do you, can you tell us a little bit about what you said? Well, one of the things I remember was that um, that Jesus uh, when he meets Martha. You know, it's it's fascinating, by the way, that Martha shows up and says to Jesus, "If if Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died." And then a few verses later, Mary, you might remember this part, comes up to Jesus and says exactly the same words. Uh, you know, Lord, if you'd been here, my mother, uh, my brother wouldn't have died. But what's interesting is Jesus' response are two completely different responses. Same same request, same mm. totally different responses. With Martha, he kind of he's kind of blunt. He says. I am the resurrection and the life, you know. With Mary, he just sh- he just weeps. Mm-hmm. And I was basically trying to say that Jesus, uh, unlike the rest of us, you know, you, you know, most of us are either introverted or extroverted, or we speak out or we're quiet or we're shy or we're bold. And Jesus had no temperament. He was perfectly wise. He always, always did exactly what was required. Mm-hmm. We have a tendency to be, we have default modes. And if we, you know, those of us who are outspoken, if we accidentally in a situation that require that, we look brilliant. Mm-hmm. And if we're, act- if we're in a, a situation in which we really should have shut up, we'd look stupid because we speak up. And I was basically saying that Jesus Christ gives everybody what they need, and whatever you need, you can get right now. I said, some of you probably need to be confronted. Some of you probably just need to have somebody weep with you. I'll try. The people of this church will try to give you whatever you need. But Jesus is the only one that always perfectly gives you what you need. So I was trying to get people to come to Jesus as their comforter. Wonderful sermon. Now, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you to say a little bit about your vision and really, I think, your passion for cities. Obviously, you are a pastor in a city, yeah. one of the largest in the world, yeah. but you have a ministry, Redeemer City to City. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been in Birmingham talking a little bit about that. Can you give us a little bit of that vision? I try to make a case that is nuanced enough because <clears throat> when people hear me say, it's really important for Christians to reach cities. Um, I can see why that rankles some people. It rankles them a little bit because they say, right now cities are pretty hip. Young people want to live in cities. And the countryside's not. And so it sounds like I'm saying, um, go with the sophisticated, cool people and, uh, and minister there. And the, the, the simple folks of the countryside, you know, they're, they're, you know don't, don't think about them. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm a little sensitive to that because uh, I actually do see people who want to go to cities to start churches or to, or, or to minister there uh, because they want to live there because it's cool and hip. So actually I do see that motivation, and I'd love to kaposh it where I can, but it's hard to look into people's motives. So I do think that that's important to, to say that shouldn't be the reason why you go. Here's the reason why you ought to go, and that is that cities are growing so fast. Uh, and and it, this is my bottom line. If, if I could prove this to you, but I don't want to bore you because some of you have heard me use these these statistics. 
um, cities in the third world or the you know, Latin America, Africa, and Asia uh, are growing so incredibly fast that the countryside is almost going into disrepair because people are mm-hmm. moving into cities so fast. Even in this country, even in places like Europe and Australia that are already 70% urbanized, they're going to 80 and 90%. And so here's my nutshell. You need churches everywhere there's people, but the people of the world are moving into cities faster than the churches are. And therefore, to not prioritize city ministry when the people of the world are moving there fast. See, they're not equally distributed. People of the world are going to cities so fast that if we don't prioritize cities, we're actually losing the world, and we're disobeying the Great Commission, which says, go where the nations are. Well, where the nation's going, they're going to cities. So if I just say, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't like cities or uh, only hip people go to cities. Well, unfortunately, for various reasons, for good and bad reasons, people are moving to cities. And unless the church goes with them, we're not obeying the Great Commission. So that's, you know, that's my, um, that's what I'm saying to people. I'm not saying let's go to cities because they're great. In many cases, they're not. Cities are actually the best and worst of 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 the human race. The very best and the very worst is there. So if you go there, it's going to be expensive, it's going to be diverse, it's going to be difficult in many ways. It's very, it may not be the easiest place to live, but I say, Christians, if you have a call, if you can, if you can go there and minister, please do, for those reasons. I have one more question. It's about the Gospel Coalition. Ah. Tell us what the Gospel Coalition is. We here at Beeson know it through Colin Hansen. He's Mr. Gospel Coalition at Beeson. Well, there, there you have it. <laughs> But we'd, but you're one of the founders with Dr. Yeah, D.A. Carson. Right. So what are you all about in the Gospel Coalition? Well, fortunately, I can make this a, an, a quick answer because your earlier astute questions already drew out this idea. Don and I, probably because, you know, we're older guys, um, we remember when evangelical, evangelicalism was a little more unified, a lot more unified, actually. <laughs> and uh, people felt they could work together and they weren't, too divided between high church and low church and Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal and Calvinist and hyper-Calvinist and you know, Wesleyan. And we, we, we remember when people were, were more together and the boundaries were clearer and we were actually were trying in the Gospel Coalition to, to essentially be what Don always says, be prophetic from the center. He's always said, let's be prophetic from the center instead of saying we've got the, the right way to go. Um, <clears throat> We are concerned about the edges of evangelicalism, meaning there's a kind of emerging church liberal edge. There's a kind of political, um, uh, you know, sort of a political edge. There's a Pentecostal edge, a prosperity gospel edge. And around the edges, we're not real excited about what's happening there. And we are afraid of that further fragmenting. So we, we really were trying to bring people together across the denominations who believed in the, um, the evangelical gospel, yes, that we learned from John Stott and J.I. Packer and people like that, and just lift it up. So we're not trying to be a school. We're trying to be a, a kind of a clearinghouse, a place of cooperation. So we basically were trying to do what I said we both felt was uh, good about evangelicals in the old days. We're trying to hold things together. Not everybody thinks we have. In many way, some people would say you're just increase. In fact, I'm talking to somebody right now who says the Gospel Coalition just increases the fragmentation because it's just one more group saying we're real true, true evangelicalism. But I don't know how you avoid that at this point. I don't know how anybody avoids it. Uh, though I would say 
frankly, you at Beeson have done a very you have a very similar kind of calling, especially since you have the the you know the various chairs for different denominations, uh, trying to unite people across denominations for a common evangelical faith. I respect it quite a bit. So if, I would say your vision and what we're trying to do is the same, mm-hmm. but often we still you know it's 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 a hard road. It's a hard road. Our guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Timothy Keller. He's the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City and the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. Thank you, Tim, for this wonderful conversation. And thanks. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.